Good morning. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19, if you would turn there. Or you can follow on the screen if you need to. That's fine. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. The passage reads, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. I think it was about a year ago, I'm not sure, I was rather bored waiting to catch a flight, and I turned on to a show called The View, that bastion of conservative Christian thought, if any of you are unaware of what it is. And the panel that day was discussing the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court case that had legalized abortion. And in this particular panel discussion, Whoopi Goldberg, that great witness for the Christian faith, said to her fellow panelists, a couple of whom she was ticked at, well, your Bible don't say nothing about abortion, and you shouldn't judge. Who are you to judge others? My rule, she said, is I don't judge nobody. I do unto others as I would like them to do unto me, and it would be nice if the rest of you were more tolerant. What this reflected, and I think you can see the problem right away with her view, when she said we shouldn't judge, what was she doing? Judging. And when she said that uh, we should, you know, do unto others, uh, Whoopi, does others include the unborn? Because if not, you're assuming something. And if so, uh, aren't you kind of uh, missing the mark here with what you're saying? But what we have exhi exhibited here is a classic case of where our culture is, men and women. We live in a world today that when it comes to right and wrong, thinks there are no right answers. All we have are personal perspectives. In fact, Dr. Phil wrote a book called All We Have is Personal Perspectives. I guess that's his perspective. But the point being, people today get upset when you call abortion a sin or call anything else a sin. And today I want to talk on that topic of the sin of abortion, its gravity, its resolution, and our response. And it's significant for the reasons I just gave. When you live in a world where the word sin has become taboo, uh, it's very vital that we as Christians know how to ground what we believe in a biblical worldview that is gauged on truth with a capital T. Our relativistic culture is going to take us on and not be happy that we do that, but too bad, that's what we got to do. I mean, I've, I'm sure you've heard this too. The issue of abortion comes up and somebody says to you, well, it's fine if you personally oppose it, but who are you to impose your views on others? Now think about that for just a moment. Imagine if I said to you today, I personally oppose spousal abuse, but if you want to do it, I'm not going to impose my will on you, and I'm certainly not going to ask the law to protect your spouse. You would think that my moral compass was totally fractured, and you'd be right. Or imagine this, I personally oppose slavery, but if you want to own a slave, I'm not going to judge you. Well, those kinds of statements strike us as just absurd, but when it comes to a topic like abortion, people want to say the Bible has nothing to say about it, and they want to say that right and wrong cannot be known. And today I want to look at three things the Bible definitely does teach about abortion so that we can be clear on what it is we believe. 
I, I was just struck listening to Whoopi that day when she said the Bible don't say nothing about abortion. Set aside the grammar for a moment. Think about this. Is she saying that whatever the Bible does not expressly condemn, it allows? Where in the Bible does it say, thou shalt not use neighbor for shark bait? Does anybody know a verse for that? It's not there, but does that mean you can do it? If you think so, please come up and see me or one of the staff before the service ends. Obviously, simply because something isn't mentioned in Scripture, it doesn't follow it's permitted. There are ways of getting at truth that don't require a specific verse saying, thou shalt not, and we'll look at that today. And the basic takeaway I want you to grasp today is this. A biblical worldview on abortion is one that recognizes the sin of shedding innocent blood, rejoices in the remedy for shedding innocent blood, and embraces the demands that we have to face in light of the shedding of innocent blood. And your first point on your outline is simply this. The sin of innocent blood is particularly egregious in Scripture and represents a preeminent moral crisis. That's what we see here in Proverbs 6, where we're told that one of the things the Lord hates is hands that shed innocent blood. Now, I realize as believers, some of us might think, well, wait a minute, isn't all sin sin? And there's a, there's a kernel of truth in that. All sin alienates us from God. And as believers, we are all equal. In fact, the whole world is equal in this way. Every human being on the planet, including all of us in this building today, equally share a sin nature. We are not righteous people by nature. We are rebels against our creator. And though we are equal in sharing a sin nature, and here's the key distinction, it does not follow that the acts that spring from that sinful nature are all morally equivalent. For example, I think we can all agree that there is a moral distinction between stealing someone's pencil and committing murder. The two are not morally equivalent. And scripture here seems to teach the same thing. There are specific things that the Lord detests and hates. And that Hebrew idea of the Lord hating something is, I don't even know how to describe it, but in the original language, it basically has to do with a distaste and a hatred that is so deep, it's hard to even put words on it. These are things the Lord hates. And throughout scripture, we see examples of of the Lord saying that the shedding of innocent blood is something he hates. And I want to quote a few of them just so you can understand where I'm coming from here, where we see God saying that he hates the shedding of innocent blood. In Psalm 106, the psalmist says this, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. In fact, think about this. God led his people captive in major part portion because of what they were doing to their own children and shedding their own innocent blood on the hands of the idol worshipers. Then the Lord's anger was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. There's that word again, abhorred his heritage for what they had done. He gave them to the hands of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Isaiah 1, verses 15 to 16, we read this. 
God says to his people, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 to 3, the prophet says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Elsewhere in Scripture, Prophet Jeremiah says, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such disaster on this place, because the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. People have forsaken me. They have profound this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom, they, whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places to Baal to burn their sons in the fire in burnt offerings to Baal, and then listen to what this says, which I did not command or decree, nor did it even come into my mind. God says, these people are doing things that are so wicked, I didn't even plan on them or think of them doing these things. In Joel chapter 3, the prophet writes, Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become like a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. In the New Testament, lest you think these are just Old Testament condemnations of shedding innocent blood. We hear in, in, in the angel's message, the one that brings wrath in Revelation 16. He says, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, or you who brought these judgments. For they, meaning the inhabitants of the earth, have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. This is throughout scripture. We see the shedding of innocent blood being presented as a particularly egregious evil and one that is a preeminent moral crisis. It's not like other things. It is a particular kind of evil that God is referencing here when he talks about the shedding of innocent blood. Now, that raises the question we need to look at right now. Is abortion the shedding of innocent blood? And the answer is yes, if. If what? If the unborn are human. And we know that they are. And I'm going to make an argument here that isn't necessarily going to be from Scripture, but I'm going to use the science of embryology and philosophy to make a case that the unborn are indeed human. This is not a hard thing to understand from the science of embryology. Here's what that science says, and I'm not going to quote you pages of scientific literature. You can rest assured of that. I'm going to put it to you in a sentence. Here it is. From the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. I want you to hold your hand up for a moment like this, and I want you to give yourself a good pinch on the back of your hand. I'm not trying to keep you awake. There's a reason for this. Ladies, if your husband isn't participating, grab skin cells off the back of his neck. Give yourself a good pinch. Congratulations, you just sent a couple of hundred somatic cells hurling to their demise on the Bible in front of you. 
And some of you are going, that's bad news. Well, I got news for you. It gets even worse. Every one of those cells you just sent to their demise individually contains your DNA encoding. Did you just commit mass homicide? The answer is no. And I think you know why. These cells on the back of your hand are merely part of a larger human being, you. They are not distinct whole human beings the way you were when you were an embryo, the way I was when I was an embryo. There's a difference in kind between each of our bodily cells and the embryonic human beings we once were. That's the clear teaching of the science of embryology. You'll find it in embryology textbooks worldwide. But there's another point we need to make here. Science tells us what the unborn is. The unborn are distinct, living, whole human beings, but science can't tell you how to treat the un unborn, how to value the unborn. We have to do a little philosophy and theology to do that, and that too is not hard to think about. Let me put it to you this way. People love to say, well, that embryo is not self-aware, therefore it's not a person with rights, or that embryo is too small, or that embryo can't see itself existing over time. In fact, the ethicist Peter Singer at Princeton University says this, no newborn should be considered a person until 30 days after birth, and disabled infants should be allowed to be killed on the spot if the parents consent to that. Why? Because in his view, newborn and fetus both are not self-aware, therefore both can be killed. In other words, Singer wants you to believe, as do many abortion rights advocates, that what makes you valuable as a human being is not what you are by nature, a creature who bears the image of his maker, but rather what makes you valuable is what you can do functionally, your ability to have thoughts, your ability to have cognitive awareness. And until you have that, you don't count as a person. But you know what we need to stop doing, brothers and sisters? Christians need to stop assuming the burden of proof every time somebody brings up an, an objection to our worldview. When somebody says that embryo doesn't have a right to life, it's not self-aware, is that an argument or an assertion? I'll give you a hint. It's an assertion. They've given you no argument for why self-awareness matters in the first place. To kind of give this a little more of a pedestrian feel, if I were to claim that right now there are pink elephants swinging from the exit sign at the back of the room, the three of you that just looked did the right thing, who bears the burden of proof, you or me? I do, I made the claim. And when people say to us, well, the unborn don't count because they're not developed enough, they're not viable, they're not self-aware, instead of saying, oh, well, by week eight, the unborn have brainwaves we can measure, wrong answer. Challenge the premise, look at them and say, why is self-awareness value giving in the first place? And how self-aware do I have to be not to be killed? Make them do the work of defending their own claim. It's not on you. Now, there are differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult. But as you've heard me say here before, none of those differences matter such that we can say it's okay to kill you then but not now. And a handy way to remember this, you may remember this, we use the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. There's a difference of size, there's your S, a difference of level of development, there's your L, a difference of environment, there's your E, and a difference of degree of dependency. Those are the four ways you, the young adult or adult, differs from the embryo you once were. Here's the question, not are there differences, but do those differences matter? And when we look at them, we see they do not. There's a difference of size. You were smaller as an embryo. You know what your answer should be? So. 
In fact, I want you to bring that word back into your vocabulary. You used it very well as a teenager. You know exactly how to put your hands on your hips when you were arguing with mom and dad and say, so? Dad says, your report card's lousy. You're not driving. So? Yeah, right. Bring that word back to your vocabulary. You are smaller as an embryo. So why does body size matter? Men are generally larger than women. Do men deserve more rights than women simply because they're larger? What about level of development? Yeah, you were less developed as an embryo. So why does that matter? Two-year-old girls are less developed than 21-year-old young women. Two-year-old girls do not have a developed reproductive system yet. Are they less human and valuable than the 21-year-old who does? Uh, what about your environment, where you were located? You were in the womb, now you're out. So, why does my location determine what I am? If you drove at least seven miles to come to church today, would you put your hand up? Okay, quite a few. Anybody drive 17 miles? 27 miles. Okay, first service beat you guys. They had some long distance runners, I'll tell you. If a journey of 27 miles did not change you from one kind of thing to another, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to a valuable human being we can't? Answer, if you weren't already human and valuable, just changing your location isn't going to fix that. And finally, degree of dependency. Yeah, you depended on your mother for survival, but why does that matter? You know, you think about it, newborns depend on their mothers. They aren't able to live on their own. Cognitively uh, disabled human beings depend on others for their survival. Does that mean we can intentionally kill them? I saw a story about two young women, you may remember their names, the Henschel twins. The Henschel twins are now in their 30s. What has happened is the press has followed them since infancy. And these two young women now in their 30s, you look at a picture of them, they're conjoined twins, you see one set of legs, and then from the waist up, two body trunks, two shoulders, two heads. And these two girls, or young women now, share each other's circulatory systems, they share bodily organs, you cannot separate them without killing both of them. But if it's true, as Planned Parenthood alleges, that we can intentionally dismember an unborn human because he depends on his mother for survival, if dependency on another human being means you can be intentionally killed, neither one of those young women have a right to life and both can be killed. This is the reality of the world we live in today and you don't need to be insecure that somehow your view is just some kind of private religious belief that is divorced from any kind of rational thinking. That's exactly what the secular culture wants you to believe. You can make an argument for your view that even a non-religious person has to engage. It's not enough for them to dismiss it as being religious. That won't work. They got to do the hard work of actually refuting your case, showing where your argument goes wrong. The second point we want to look at today is that the forgiveness that forgiveness for the shedding of innocent blood requires the shedding of innocent blood. You know, the most, one of the most common responses I get when I speak on abortion, it's this. A young man or a young woman or maybe even an older woman or older man will come up to me and say, I can't forgive myself for what I did back then. And it may be a young man who paid for a girlfriend to have an abortion or it may be a woman who chose that because she felt there was no other way out. And it's always so sad because you feel they're, they're hurt. But 
in one sense, they're telling the truth. They can't forgive themselves. Men and women, none of us can forgive ourselves for what we've done because we haven't just sinned against us. We've sinned against our creator. The fix has got to come from outside of us. It's not within us. And so in that sense, she was right when, or they were right when they say we can't forgive ourselves. I totally get that. The culture solution, though, is so heartbreaking today. Instead of dealing with the sin of abortion by turning to the one who can forgive it, as Christians do, here's the culture's answer right now. Shout your abortion. Maybe you've heard this phrase. I saw a picture this week on the internet, on social media, of a young woman. I, I'm guessing she was at best in her mid-30s, not that old. And she's wearing a t-shirt that says, surprise, I've had 21 abortions. And she was broadcasting this over social media. Now, whether she had or not, I don't know. Seems like an awful lot to me. But notice her response to the sin of abortion was not confession. It was to shout it and say there's nothing wrong with it. And our culture is working overtime to justify itself on abortion. The Bible gives a completely different solution. The Bible's solution to sin, whether it be abortion or any other sin we might be dealing with, is not to look inward to ourselves. Let me take you to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. This is a passage we are very familiar with. You can turn there if you want, or you can just run with my summary, whatever you want. In Isaiah 6, the most holy man in all of Israel, the prophet Isaiah, he is God's messenger. No one is more holy. He sees a vision of the exalted Lord in heaven, and God is on his throne. The angels are attending to him, saying, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the most holy man of Israel sees this vision, and he doesn't respond by saying, Oh, wasn't that great? I had such an intimate time with the Lord. No, he falls to the ground in abject terror. He is absolutely frightened and undone by what he has seen. In other words, it terrifies him to catch a glimpse of the holy God. And here's what he says, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, the prophet recognized that in the presence of a holy God, the solution to his sin was not in him. He didn't have anything. And the story ends with an angel bringing a hot coal to purify his lips. Notice it's God who provides the atonement for the sin of unclean lips in this passage. Then we look at the New Testament, Romans chapter 4, where Paul talks about Abraham. Now what's interesting about this passage in Romans 4 the Jews looked to Abraham as their model of what an ideal life should look like. And in New Testament Judaism, even in the Hebrews of the Old Testament, there was a tendency to teach Abraham as being the model of how we should live. Look how virtuous Abraham was. And if we can be holy like our father Abraham, we will be good people. And the Apostle Paul blows that idea to bits in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when he says this, speaking of Abraham, Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but listen to this phrase, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, or if you will, reckoned as righteousness. In other words, men and women, we are not declared righteous 
We are, I should say, we are declared righteous. We're not made righteous. This is where we differ from our Catholic friends. Our Catholic friends view justification as we are infused with righteousness. The problem with that view, what we're infused with, we can what? Lose. I could end up losing that righteousness if it's something in me because I'm not a good guy. I'm not holy. I'm not righteous the way God demands. But if I'm declared righteous, that's a whole nother matter because it's God who's doing the justifying. But that raises a big, big problem. And that's this. How can a holy God justify ungodly people when his holy character demands that sin be punished? This is something we need to ponder. Oftentimes we hear people say, well, you know, we shouldn't talk about sin. We shouldn't draw stark lines because after all, God is love and God is merciful and he overlooks sin. Yeah, he does, but that's only part of the truth. If God is holy, he cannot wink at sin. He cannot just brush it under the rug and say, you know, no big deal. I'll just let it slip this time. That's not what he can do and be consistent with his holy and righteous character. So how does a holy God declare unrighteous people righteous? Well, the answer is found in Romans 3, verses 21 to 25. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. After, by the way, just to set the context here, Paul has spent Romans 1 and 2 delivering a stunning indictment against our entire human race. He says the Jews aren't righteous because although they claim to have the oracles of God, they don't live by them. They say they do right things, but they don't live righteously. The Gentile world is wicked and lost because it suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. And then Paul concludes in Romans 3.20, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now that's a real problem because the Bible is clear that without righteousness, no one will enter the kingdom of God. It then says there is none righteous. Well, now what do we do? Well, here's Paul's answer in Romans 3, verses 21 to 25. But now, by the way, I love those words. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, get ready for a big word, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Let me define that big word I just threw at you, propitiation. You're thinking, what on earth? I haven't had enough coffee to deal with that kind of word today. What Paul means is this. Propitiation has to do with pacifying or turning away the wrath of a God. Now what's interesting is in the pagan world, people would try to pacify their gods by bringing them offerings, by doing some atoning work, by doing something to please the deity. Oftentimes they would try to bribe the deity. That was the pagan attempt at propitiation. The gospel is very different though. For that post-abortion man and woman, or for any of us here today, 
God himself provides the propitiation for sin in the form of his son. As Paul says here, he sent forth to be a propitiation for us. The righteousness God demands is the righteousness he provides by sending us Jesus who stands in our place condemned. It's what we sang about just a few moments ago. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. In other words, the remedy for sin is not in us. It's what the reformers referred to as a, quote, alien, unquote, righteousness. Now, I'm not talking here about the movie with Sigourney Reaver and I forget who else was in that, Harrison Ford, I think, the alien monster movie. No, here's what the reformers meant, meant by this. When it comes to the righteousness that God requires, you and I don't have any of it in us. We can't intrinsically drum it up. To satisfy God's judgment against sin, he has to provide the righteousness we lack. And that's what happened. When Jesus dies on the cross, he bears the judgment of God that you and I deserve. And then he not only does that, he fulfills the righteous demands of the law that none of us in this room have fulfilled. He does that for us. That's essentially what propitiation means. Christ being set forth as an atonement offering for our sin. And when I encounter post-abortion men and women, you know what I say to them? You don't need an excuse. You need an exchange. And like everybody else in this room today, what you need is the righteousness of Christ that covers your sin. Now, Martin Luther had a way of illustrating this. If you'll pardon me for using a rather coarse example, but Luther was known for these kinds of things after all. And Luther said that when we think of God justifying us as sin sinners, the best way to illustrate it is to think of a dunghill. Now, let me explain what Luther meant. In the medieval European landscape, farmers would save up animal refuge in order to fertilize their fields prior to planting them the next spring so they could have a harvest in the fall. And so as you approach the fall season after the harvest, there would be these mounds of dunghills all over the landscape of Europe. And the place stunk. I mean, it was awful. The stench was awful. The sight was awful. And Luther said, our sinful condition before God is like that dunghill. He wasn't saying humans are dunghills. He was saying our sinful condition in the face of the Father's holiness can be likened to a dunghill. It stinks. There's nothing to commend itself to us. But then Luther says justification is like the first snowfall of winter. It covers the dunghill in a perfect blanket of white. The dunghill is still a dunghill intrinsically, but now it's been covered. The stench is gone. The unsightly image is gone. And Luther says that's what it means to be declared justified. That when God declares us righteous in virtue of Jesus dying in our place, we remain sinners inwardly, but we are not judged as sinners. Why? Because now we're covered in the righteousness of Christ and God judges us on that righteousness, not our own. That's the glory of the gospel. And Paul wants to make that clear to us in Romans 3 and Romans 4, and it's something that we all ought to dwell on. You know, one of the things I did when our daughter Emily was in, in school, in grade school in particular, I would drive her to Arbor Springs School. It was only about a six-minute drive, but I thought to myself, how could I redeem this time instead of listening to the radio? 
what could I do to put the truth of Scripture in her head? And she and I memorized a number of scriptures and lines to hymns that put the gospel in her soul at a very young age. And I want to share with you a few of those scriptures we memorized together as we would drive to school. And I want you to think of these as my New Year's gift to you. Men and women, everybody in this room is like me, I'm sure. Day in and day out, the enemy of your soul beats up on you. And if you don't think that there is a spiritual world of darkness that has waged war on your soul, you are mistaken. The Bible speaks of principalities and about demonic uh, personalities that are at war with you. It speaks of our enemy, the devil, being like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. And the way you answer that lion is with the sword of the spirit, with the truth of the word of God. And I want to just, I've listed these verses in your, your bulletin, but I want to just go through a few of them now. I love Jonah 2.9. Very short verse. Everybody can memorize this one, okay? Salvation is of the Lord. Now, I had a, a, a teacher in grad school who put it very well. He said, when you are in a big pit that you have dug and fallen into, and it's your fault you're in that pit, and you've messed up royally, it is a mighty fine thing to remember that salvation is of the Lord. Think of Jonah sitting in the belly of that fish after running away from God. He doesn't say, okay, God, I'm going to be good enough now. He says, salvation is of the Lord. That's his only hope. It's our only hope. Romans 5, 6 to 10. This is one you ought to memorize. Pin it on your refrigerator. Every time you open it up, take a glance at it. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's that idea again. Christ dying for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved in this life. Romans 8 puts it incredibly well. We all know Romans 8. We've memorized parts of it. But it's important we grasp the flow of Paul's thought here. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect in Romans 8.33? And then he says this, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is that? 
Because if the judge is the one who justified you in virtue of his son, you have security as a believer. You can go to bed every night knowing that you have the verdict of the final judgment. It's already been done. It's wrapped up. Your case is secured because you've been declared righteous by the judge. Not because of what you've done, but because what his son did. The merits of his son. That is the amazing truth of scripture and we need to dwell on this. Last Sunday... Pastor Ken, by the way, I cannot express enough appreciation to Pastor Ken for what he's done filling in for us. I think you share with me unbelievable gratitude for his willingness to stay with us and faithfully bring us the word of God each week. And it's an honor to be able to fill in for him. But as Pastor Ken was preaching last week, he was preaching about the fact that oftentimes we lack passion in our faith. You may remember him talking about this. What would happen to us as a congregation if we over and over again focused on the incredible atonement that has been provided for us. We sang about it today. Every one of the songs we sung today talked about Jesus taking our place and that we are reconciled to God through his atoning work, not our own. What happens to a church that gets so lit by the gospel message of God declaring ungodly people righteous in virtue of his son? If that doesn't give us passion, I don't know what will, because on our own, we're lost. I think we all know that. Third point we need to focus on that the, the Bible talks about is the idea that the shedding of innocent blood demands a response, a behavioral response. It's not enough to just feel bad about it. We have to do something about it. Proverbs 24, 11 to 12 says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weigh the heart perceive it? Does not he who keep watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay according to his work. In other words, it matters what we do in the face of injustice. If the shedding of innocent blood is a preeminent moral crisis, then it does require something from God's people. How might we do this? Well, the first thing it needs to happen, or the first thing that I think needs to happen is all of us in this room need to be able to summarize our pro-life view persuasively. And before you leave, you're going to know how to do that in a minute or less. In fact, we have ushers at the door. No one's leaving until you prove you can do this. How's that? Call the roadhouse and tell them you're going to be late, all right? No, we're going to tell you how to do this in a minute or less. In fact, here it goes. I'm going to go ahead and do this. I need somebody. Rich, you're the man. I want you to time me. I'm going to do this in a minute or less. Suppose you have an Aunt Betty. She's not a Christian. She doesn't support your pro-life view. She thinks you're nuts that you're a Christian and pro-life. And next Thanksgiving, between bites of turkey and stuffing, she looks at you and says, now why are you pro-life? Here's your answer in a minute or less. Start the clock, Rich. Aunt Betty, I'm pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and develop. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you at that earlier stage of development. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, remember SLED, are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. How'd I do? 
43 seconds. Okay, that's rocking it, folks. Uh, I'm 63. I'm slow on the basketball court, but that was getting it done. But let me ask you a question. How many Bible verses did I cite? But did I convey biblical truth? Yes, and that's our job, men and women. We are to testify against evil. We're to do it persuasively. Now, some of you might have been thinking, I couldn't write all that down. How am I going to remember it? I have good news for you. You can either scan the QR code that's going to go up on the screen in a minute or so, or you can text 229-258-6290. Again, you can use that code, or you can come back to the book table. I'll give you the number to text. If you text that or scan that code in about seven minutes, that one-minute soundbite's going to be on your phone. You're going to have it right there that you can use it, and we want you to use it. As Lee mentioned, I also have in the back a new copies of my newly released second edition of The Case for Life that is written to help equip pro-life Christians in a post-Roe v. Wade world when society seems to be falling apart around us. How can we be faithful ambassadors? On top of all of this, I hope we all realize that even though it's costly to be pro-life, we need to be willing to do it. I'm reminded of the movie Schindler's List. I don't know how many of you saw that movie, and I'll close with this, but in that movie, Oscar Schindler in World War II used his own money to buy Jews off the death camp list. And he would go to the Nazi commanders and say, don't kill these Jews. I'll put them for work in my factory. I'll buy them from you. And over a thousand men and women were saved by Oscar Schindler who bought them out of the death camps so they could work in his factory. And there's a scene in the movie toward the end that it undoes me every time I see it. Oscar Schindler, now that the war is over, is saying goodbye to all the men and women that he ransomed with his own money. And he says to the Jewish leader, as he's getting ready to get in his own car and leave the people he saved, he says to the Jewish leader, I could have done more. I could have done more. And the Jewish leader looks at him and says, Oscar, there's 1,100 of us alive today because of what you did. And Oscar will have none of it. He says, I could have got more out. I didn't do enough. I wasted so much money. You have no idea how much money I wasted. I could have got more out and I didn't do it. And then he looks at his car that he's about to be hauled away and he says, my car, why did I keep my car? They would have given me 10 more people for this car and I kept it. Why did I keep it? I could have got more out. He looks at his lapel, rips a lapel pen off his jacket and says, why did I keep this pen? Two more people right here and I kept it. Why? I could have got more out. And the scene ends with him collapsing, weeping profusely, saying, I didn't do enough. I could have got more out, and I didn't do it. And as we look at the, shed of the sin of shedding innocent blood in our own culture today, I think we need to ask ourselves a question that's uncomfortable, but we need to ask it. And that is this. Are we taking the shedding of innocent blood as serious as Oscar Schindler took it in 1940? And if so, what does that mean behaviorally? My colleague Greg Cunningham puts it real well. He says, are any of the reasons we might give for not speaking up on this issue worth the price of children's lives that might have been saved had we been more courageous? People love to say, well, I don't want to get political. Every moral issue gets politicized, men and women. Slavery got politicized. Segregation got politicized. They all get politicized. That's no excuse for us to bow out of the issue. And so my hope today is that we will re-equip ourselves, that we will encourage ourselves to pursue biblical truth in all, all areas of life. Let's pray, shall we? 
Father in heaven, we are not righteous people. We're not righteous in any way that we can commend ourselves to you. All of us here today, whether we've had abortions or not, need an alien righteousness. We need a propitiation for our sins. We need someone who can bear the judgment we deserve and live the perfect life of obedience we fail continually to live. I would ask, Lord, that today, if there are any here that have been wounded by abortion and never been reconciled to their creator, that today might be that day it happens. I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that they would be redeemed from their sins as all of us who know you have been redeemed from our sins. I pray you would give us courage. We repent of being those who fear what the world thinks more than what our Lord thinks. Help us to be creative and courageous ambassadors for you wherever you have placed us. For Jesus' sake, amen.